We're reading from the book of Luke 1, 26 through 55 in the ESV. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who has believed that there will be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked in the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with, strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And that's the word of the Lord. So we are looking at, uh, this is the fourth and final week in Advent in our scripture readings. If you notice, I have extended 
Um, mostly what we're going to go over is the, the Magnificat, uh, Luke 1, 46 through 55, but our gospel reading is Luke 1, 26 through 38, and I added in there and had Liz, Liz read a little bit more context about how what's, what's right before the Magnificat is the revelation of um, her cousin Elizabeth and John the Baptist in the womb that Jesus is the Lord, which then leads to uh, Mary's song of praise. Um, so just a real quick uh, reminder, if you didn't read uh, Deanna's article on the Advent candles and the wreath, uh, fourth week is going to be, if we went in order, it doesn't matter, is going to be this candle. It's a purple one. Uh, and it is the candle of peace. And so we'll look at that and how, see how that's integrated in these scripture passages. So in doing research for this without reading um, before, well, I'd say in the context of um, one of the reasons why it's good to read good commentaries by good people and know who those are historically and even in modern context uh, is because if you just Google, uh, which is what I do a lot of times, <laughs> just uh, not that that will give you the right answer, but um, it will give you an idea of what's out there and the top, I would say, three... I guess it was at least three um, articles in my Google algorithm that showed up were um, pointing to how great of a role Mary played in this socioeconomic revolution and how much of a revolutionary she were, she was. And, and uh, of course, that's in the modern context of a revolutionary and feminism and all these things. And so... One of the first things, um, we'll get down to it in a minute when we get to her humble estate. But um, just a side note, remember to read the whole Bible in context. And anything, if it seems weird or it seems modern, it is probably. Uh, might be a modern take on an old idea. But, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit. But she is playing, so Mary is playing a prophetic role. She is prophesying as we understand biblically, prophesy, prophecy. Uh, it is a, a, um, a praise to the Lord. It is exaltation. Uh, it is admonition. And it is, uh, in a sense, telling of what the Lord will do uh, and what he has done. So, um, you know, as we get to this, uh, just a reminder of like, you know, just think about the context of, you know, the whole Luke 1 account, there's tons of angels and visions and dreams and things that come into play. And one of the things I love um, about, you know, when we'll talk in a minute about like why God chose Mary is um, if you look at just like, without thinking of like modern feminism and masculine context, uh, when Joseph is told that Mary's pregnant, what is... Uh, what does he do? He's going to want to divorce her quietly. You know, maybe he'll, he'll keep her humble. Maybe that's because uh, the stigma that it would bring on him or whatever. But he definitely isn't filled with the spirit of the Lord and walking in wisdom. He needs angelic intervention, <laughs> like most of us guys do. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so as Mary, so she's um, of the house of David, which is... Um, of the 
Is that of the tribe of Benjamin? I think. Anyways, um, whatever tribe that's from, uh, regardless of the tribe of Judah, Judah. Uh, either way, David's house is, where is that? It's nowhere to be seen. Uh, the Jews are in disarray. They're, they've been conquered. Um, and through uh, about four to 500 years of being in captivity with um, no real place to call home, as the old covenant had said, uh, the house of David is just wiped out, desolate, pretty much no more. And so uh, who he chooses, who God chooses to come to uh, is of importance, and we'll get into that a little bit. So we're just going to go through, we don't normally do expository uh, teachings like this, but we're just going to go line for line and look at it, and uh, hopefully this will remind us of the great work that the Lord has done and will do. And so it starts by how every uh, good prayer starts. If you look at historically in uh, Ezra's, Nehemiah's, Abraham's prayers, David's, Solomon's, um, most, uh, I, could, I could think off the top of my head, at least a few of the prophets like Isaiah, all of the prayers start this way. And um, what the Bible isn't in its full context isn't just a guide for life, isn't just a rule book. But there are many guides throughout Scripture. And so, but it doesn't, you know, besides when Jesus says, his disciples say, how do we pray? Jesus tells them very clearly, how do we pray? Right? Hallowed be your name. That's how it starts, right? Um, And so Mary's praying in the same way. Right? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so just before this, um, Elizabeth uh, witnesses and John the Baptist that this is the Lord. This is the Adonai. Now, in English versions, it's hard to tell which Lord is which Lord because there's either capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is Yahweh, or there's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, which is Adonai, which is when the Lord Yahweh uh, said to my Lord Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. We're talking about the Adonai, right? The servant that is, or the, the Lord that is at Yahweh's right hand, who is going to take over the nation, Psalm 2. All these are Adonai. And so that's who Elizabeth witnessed and John the Baptist by the Holy Spirit of who, who Jesus was, who was in Mary's womb. And so uh, how confusing that would have been um, for Mary, in some sense, probably the same way David says, the Lord said to my Lord, which confounded the Jews on how uh, the Christ could be David's Lord and things, um, and his son. And so, uh, so the depths of Mary's being is, is magnifying and rejoicing in the Lord. And although this isn't a didactic teaching, but you glean from these these prayers and these songs of praise of, uh, I notice this in my prayer life, is often it's, Lord, please help, blah, blah, blah. And we go into petitions and we go into other things. And I would encourage, I think what um, we're going here on, on Wednesdays is, especially in the worship, is prophecy and and just beginning. And, and part of it just gets your heart right and it gets your spirit right and the right attitude and motivations is just declaring 
the Lord's praise of uh, oftentimes in scripture, you see like one king or in, you know, I think it's judges, uh, somewhere in the judges. No, I'm sorry. It's in one of the kings that there's uh, a whole army coming against Israel and there's no help for them and they're surely to be defeated and they start by lord you are sovereign and you win every victory like <laughs> that's what I, like the, that's you know uh you know praising the lord for his character for his sovereignty is like we're in this mess and we're you're right here with us lord <laughs> um that's a good place to start and so but that's the heart of of revelation of the lord is magnifying him and all of our entire being rejoicing in God. And so um, if you were to just do a word study of Savior, even in the, in the Greek, there's somewhere around 30 to 40 times the New Testament says Savior. And um, all but about three of those are very clearly attributed to Christ, right? So when you start thinking maybe she's... when we get this weird like Trinitarian thought in our heads that's like, is he t- are we praying to like the Father? Are we praying to the Son here? Or the Holy Spirit, is it all three? Or is it a combination? Or... That's, those are weird thoughts. Um, not exactly the biblical way of thinking, but, um, but so when she's saying rejoicing in my Savior, almost everywhere else in Scripture, that even just that word is pointing to Christ. Of, but more importantly, Greek aside, doesn't matter, uh, is Mary knows that she needs saved, right? And I think we often overlook that, is that we know, we know words have meanings and things like that, but, um, you know, I love reading in, uh, you know, the Abbot time, just through the Gospels, and, uh, you know, Mary was like, it says she was holy and chosen from God and all these things, but uh, the Lord, because of how he chooses to reveal himself to his people, uh, chose Mary and chose by the Holy Spirit to impregnate a young virgin, which has a social stigma and probably was an outcast. And um, you know what? Like her, her faith is exemplary throughout the first couple chapters of, of the Gospels. And so, moving on, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So remember like that, she's from the house of David. She's supposed to have this high prestigious in, in that culture of, of the house of David, knowing that the Christ is coming around this time from the house of David. And I don't think anybody thought it was going to come through some like 14 to 16 year old <laughs> virgin of like who nobody knew, right? Who would have been a better choice? Uh, John the Baptist. He's from, from one of the priests. He's from the line, right? That's not who God chose, right? From her humble estate, right? So when we are lowly, uh, that makes God higher. Just think about it this way. Humility, lowliness. If God's here, and he can't theoretically go any higher because he's God, the only way to make him higher is to bring us down, right? Just simple mathematics or geometry or logic or whatever. It's out there. Uh, but, right, like, the way we exalt God is through humility. 
right? The more humble, the more lowly, not in a groveling, not in a, oh, pity is me, but just in a realistic, honest way, looking at who we are before the Lord magnifies him, right? For behold, right now we get to the good stuff. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So I believe that Mary knew that this was a world-changing event, that the coming of the Christ meant the world would be put in order, his kingdom would come, right? So uh, there's reasons to believe because of things like, you know, Mary hid these things in her heart and her song of praise, that, that Mary knew the scriptures, she knew about the Christ, she knew what the Christ was coming to do, um, and she knew the outcome of it um, better than maybe some of her disciples, or some of Jesus' disciples. And when she proclaims that all generations, and when we get even down later that, you know, she says it again, um, Uh, that all who fear him from generation to generation. And so she knows a lot about the Christ or a lot about the Christ roles and what the Messiah and what the Savior would mean. And not just to save Israel, but to save the entire world. And so, um, and because she's using a prophetic role, um, all generations will call her blessed. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what we're working towards is not that they would, in some weird Catholic way, bless Mary and pray to her and anything, but that, uh, that we understand that through Mary came the Christ. And so as we praise Christ, we honor God and what he did. And uh, it's not that hard to get away from filial roles and, and family roles and know, uh, right, we don't just jump from like Jesus Christ to to David, <laughs> right? Uh, there's a lot in between, right? There has to be progeny. There has to be people born. There has to be a, a natural way of which God does those things um, or brings them about. Um, not that there has to be natural means. I'm just saying for children, apart from Christ, there has to be <laughs> natural means. And so she understands this, and I think she understands, especially Psalm 110, um, that he's coming to crush his enemies. He's, he's coming to set the world in order. And uh, Isaiah says that we often read around Christmas and Advent is that his kingdom, when, when the Christ comes, that means he's bringing his kingdom. And that means a filling of the entire earth. Right? And um, that means just like in the Exodus where there's a mixed multitude, that anyone who joins by faith and follows um, follows Yahweh, are those who are true Israel. But we'll get to that to the end. So, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, and holy is his name. Just as the Lord taught us to pray, right, as in, in Matthew 6, uh, just as the third commandment teaches us, uh, not just his nature and attributes, but even his name. And so when we look at... Uh, just the implications and meaning of what Mary is is praising, and so when we when we pray those things that holy is your name, and we uh, it's not just in the instant context of you know don't use like Jesus Christ as a slur or as a curse word. Surely you shouldn't, but like that name has weight to it. The name Jesus Christ has weight to it. It really does, 
anywhere you go on the earth, uh, today, almost anywhere you go on the earth, uh, that name means something, even in, even if they're bastardizing it, right? And that, but they know his name. They know that's a holy name. It's set apart. That's why we take the Lord's name in vain. But that's why pagans do it. It's because they know it's holy. They don't say, oh, Joshua Michael. Uh, <laughs> stub my toe again or whatever. <laughs> right? Because like his name carries weight. I don't know exactly what that means or the, the, the entire spiritual connotation behind that. But like we are, we know God's name. We know the God man's name and he chooses to reveal himself to us. And we can even, uh, that's, I think that's why we can call him friend is because we know his name. I don't know anybody I'm friends with that I don't know their name. <laughs> that's just one of the way it works. And so, um, but she says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Right? We don't get any context of what that means in, in Mary's life. The only thing we know up until now is that the Lord is choosing to use her, right? Um, we don't get a whole lot of uh, prequels about Mary or, or what her life was like. Um, but what we do know is that you know, just contextually speaking, in, in that culture, she was shunned, she was unmarried, she was a woman, and the Lord chose to use her. That would be, um, I, I wouldn't even know a good analogy without uh, saying something blasphemous. Uh, but I don't even know what it would translate to. But, you know, Mary wasn't... Uh, in a context where everybody knew that this was going to be the Christ. I doubt very many people believed her, and the fact that shortly after she has to flee into Egypt, and it doesn't seem like Mary's life is like that great, right? But she looks and says, the Lord has done wonderful things for me, great things for me, right? And then she says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, Right? It's not those who are born into it. It's not those who are in some socio-political or geological or geographical uh, circle um, or some nationality, but those who fear the Lord. Right? Uh, what are we commended to do as Christian parents? Bring up our children in the... Just bring them to church and let them do the work. Oh, uh, no, to the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? That's a huge weighty thing. It's We're supposed to teach and train not just our children, but everyone, all disciples of Christ, to fear him, to sit in awe of him, to stand in, um, you know, just awe at his presence, right? From generation to generation, that's who the Lord gives mercy to. Mary knows this. Mary understands the gospel, I believe, and, and she points to it. Um, you know, from here, she understands all of what the Old Covenant uh, was about, and it wasn't those who were born into it. It's those from generation who generation fear the Lord, have an honest, um, sometimes trepidation, and it's 
Uh, it's often hard for me to describe fear of the Lord because it's a whole mixed bag of a lot of things. And you see people like uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel and, and some of the prophets who have revelation and even John who have revelation of the Lord. And they're, they're really scared. <laughs> and, um, and if you've never experienced that fear of the Lord in a healthy manner, then I would encourage you to pray for that because you should be a little scared. You should be a little scared that the Lord wants to get close to you, that he wants, to, he wants you to know him deeper and he'll do whatever it costs. That's a little scary, uh, that there's no stopping him. Uh, <laughs> but also it's that, it's that not just fear and reverence is the other side that we kind of um, misuse it and we don't think of like, how that fits biblically and contextually of most of the people who, who saw the Lord just like fell down and cried and said like, woe is me. Like, don't even get close to me. Step back, you know? Um, but that's who the Lord shows mercy on. That's the lowly. That's the, those who are humble, who don't um, think they, that the Lord owes something to them, right? That they owe, they owe everything to the Lord, Right? Mary even says several times in here, or at least twice, uh, about being a servant, about being a bondservant or a slave. So next, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Right? So in um, reading some notable commentaries, right, most of them point to, uh, you know, when he has shown strength in his arm, just God's independence. God doesn't need help from anybody. The Lord continues and always is the one who is going to act first, right? All the way through um, uh, the Gospels, we see even up until, um, you know, in every, I would just say in every way, you know, we see God's always taking the first step. He's coming to his people. He's there with them all the way throughout the old covenant is um, they were expecting the Christ, but we're just waiting, right? Even in even how we can hasten the day of the Lord in a real sense that the new the New Testament points to, but we're still just like waiting, right? We can't we can hasten the day in some real sense, but also we can't make the day of the Lord, you know, in a second coming come tomorrow if we please. <laughs> He chooses. It's his strength. It's by him that acts. And in all throughout scripture, and what Mary's pointing to is uh, um, with strength from his arm is that, you know, because we're his people, Israel, his chosen elect, we work alongside him, but constantly in the historic narrative when Israel, when the people of God begin in their own strength, it's often and soon after that we fall away. Um, I'm just going to jump on a side tangent real quick. And I read a nice article uh, today by a guy I don't normally recommend because he's so anti-church, anti-ecclesiastical, and believes in a more Rushdoonian way of thinking about church, which is your family, immediate people around you, and less um, church like this, less high church and everything. And he just did a study on how when you reject Moses, the law of God, 
and pretty much the Old Testament, uh, every heresy, every major heresy throughout history, church history, has rejected Moses, rejected the law of God, and the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures. And so um, when you look at the state of the church today, and you would say any theology, uh, he wasn't making this point, but this is what I thought, is that when you have any theology that says, we are the ones that choose and we have this and asserting our rights and our part in it, um, you fall into heresy. And that's the evangelical church. So anyways, um, but it's not us. It's not us who do the work. It's, it's the Lord. He has scattered the proud and the thought of their hearts, right? Even those who would later on to think, could anything good come from Nazareth? You know, I love... Even though Mary is talking about her humble estate, I love just thinking about like, you know, when I think it's Proverbs 25, 1 or 2, that it says the glory uh, is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to find it out. I think it's 25, 2. And for whatever reason, I don't, I have not thought about this too much theologically. I just know uh, that he does it. I don't know why God loves it but he loves to conceal things in such a way that when, I guess, when people find him, uh, that they're in more appreciation, more awe. And so when you read all the Old Testament and Old Covenant, you're, you might get this idea that the Christ is coming in grandeur and glory, and that's why all of Israel was looking for a conquering king to come in and slay wicked Rome and set up his kingship and his throne and it would carry on just like the days of the kings, only better because that didn't turn out too well and and whatnot. But like God was so humble and loved concealing even his coming that when you look at when he was born, it was like just a few shepherds and people who really studied the scriptures to find out. And they got to witness the actual birth of Christ. And then, um, you know, at least until he was a young boy, who knows when the three wise men came. But, uh, and then shortly after, they're on the run and they're out of there. And like you would never, ever, 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 ever guess that this was the Christ who was going to like be the God man and come and rule the world and change the face of creation forever because he was like in a barn. I love that. I love meditating on the, just the humility and how the Lord loves to conceal a matter. And so he scatters the proud and the thoughts of their heart, right? When we think in those ways, when we think about like um, just how the Lord should reveal himself, he often likes to scatter our thoughts. And so he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So it's uh, widely acknowledged that there's moral, social, political, and economic implications to, to, to the Magnificat. By the way, the, I wrote it over the top, but I didn't go over it. The Magnificat means magnificent or magnify um, in the Latin. So that's why we call it the Magnificat. Uh, it's not a magnificent cat. It has nothing to do with felines. But 
For he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is where the modern feminist, Marxist, dialectical materialist loves to hang on to these scriptures and throw out everything else. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would love this scripture because uh, of that dialectical materialism of thinking that the Lord just always dislikes those in power and loves to set up those who are poor and lowly. And that's not the case. You could get that on a cursory reading, but uh, remember in context, it's, he shows his mercy to all who fear him. Now, um, in the context, if we're looking at this, that those, like when Jesus is talking about um, in John 10, that the thief comes to rob and kill and destroy, does anybody know who he's talking about? Satan is the wrong answer. <laughs> I just love throwing that out there because everyone gets it wrong because we use that so much as, sure, that's true. But he's talking about false shepherds. He's talking about false teachers and those of the Pharisees and those of Israel who have set themselves up as bad shepherds and have um, right walked around with their long phylacteries and, and taken these positions and who love public prayer and while and that they, you know, those in the temple were rich while still uh, oppressing the poor. And sure, the devil loved that. The devil loves everything wicked. But uh, in context, you know, just in that, like those who came to steal and kill uh, and destroy are, are those false teachers. And so um, when Mary's talking about, you know, is taking down the mighty from their thrones and exalting those of humble estate, yeah, he surely is. All those who are falsely exalting themselves over other people, those especially of who were supposed to lead Israel and who are supposed to lead God's people and have rejected that and have rejected um, uh, some things of the Lord to exalt other things, such as the, the priestly positions and, and neglected alms to the poor and, and such. And so the Lord is always doing this. Think of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Right? Why do even rulers of this world set themselves up against the Christ, against the anointed one, and he just sits in heaven and mocks? Right? Those of humble estate, you know, those who see themselves rightly before the Lord, whether whatever position they are, whether it's uh, whatever wicked president we have um, at the time, or whether it's a governor or a head of household, right? The Lord will tear down um, any of those, any of those thrones, right? But especially those, right? But we can't get it wrong that there is a, a political, a, a nation-driving Right? She says thrones, those are people who sit in real positions of authority, who, who exalt themselves, right, and who aren't humble. And the Lord is in the, in the midst of his people to rearrange that context. Um, side note, if you guys go on to the Theophilus 
Institute podcast, just go listen to, they have old James Jordan tapes on a biblical worldview. It's absolutely phenomenal. It'll blow your head, uh, blow your mind into pieces. Um, and especially the part about, uh, it's, it's largely because of the nature of that branch of reconstructionism of restoring the world through a restoration of the church. Uh, James Jordan goes just, just a, does a masterful way of describing that there's three heavens. The heavenly heavens is a sea. The second heavens is a sea. There's land and then there's sea and abyss. And how, that, how the scriptures use those imageries um, to talk about political power and those set up in thrones and who have dominion over different nations is just masterful. And it's hilarious because he keeps referring to them as tapes, which, so you know it was done in like the 80s or something. Um, and it sounds like it was. Uh, but just go on to the Theophilus podcast and search for James Jordan worldview. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, but, the, but right when um, Isaiah prophesies and what Mary's saying is talking about there is a coming kingdom. If, she's, if you're tearing down those of exalted thrones and exalting the humble, somebody is going to be in power. She's not saying that it's going to be some world system where everyone is just really nice to each other and, and likes them and there doesn't need to be a ruler, right? There's, she's, you're bringing down the haughty. You're uh, exalting the humble. They will be rulers and the Lord will tear down those thrones and set up his and his kingdom. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Oh man, the socialists love that. Right? Such is the Lord giving to those in need. Those who are rich need nothing and want nothing. So in a very basic sense, um, those and in all of Jesus's parables about the rich, uh, as far as I'm thinking off the top of my head, it's not about earthly wealth, right? Um, those of, there are, you know, noble women who follow Jesus and it doesn't say anything about them having to give all their money and be destitute. So, and who knows where their money would even go. Um, but those who are, who are humble, who are hungry, um, who are in need, those who the Lord uh, fills, Right? He sends away those just like the rich young ruler who have no need or think they have no need for Christ, right? It's a calling to, to stay hungry, to stay humble, uh, to seek the Lord, to be his servant, right? Um, but it is interesting that in the Gospels, in Acts, in the first, very well documented in the first three centuries, that a lot of times the Christians were, you know, maligned because they were uh, the poor. They were the destitute. They were, um, you know, the gospel spread um, along, you know, those people who weren't in the noble class, right? And it wasn't until the uh, fourth, fifth century to where you start seeing it, you know, take over more of the noble class and, and until Christendom was achieved, um, so I just, didn't, so there is a real sense that, uh, the poor, 
the needy, you know, who have physical needs and physical poverty that the gospel spreads among. And I think it's just easier to have your uh, eyes open to your spiritual state when that's the case, right? And the last line in here, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forevermore. So if Mary can do a 12-part teaching, I'm sure she would just take that little line and break it down into 12 weeks, three hours apiece on what that means. Um, but for sake of time, you know, Israel's chosen people who are there, who are chosen to serve God, you know, just as we were remembering through the Exodus that uh, God chose his people and wanted them to be set free from Pharaoh so that they would go out and serve him and worship him. To remember his mercy, right? We see that in with Abraham, with Moses, right? Remember your mercy. Remember the covenant that you spoke to your people. Uh, oftentimes, it's the people praying and asking God to remember his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever, who will fill the earth, who will be as the sand is, as the stars in the sky, and as the dust. Um, I recently had a nice meditative thought about dust, how it uh, covers the earth. It literally covers every space, every square inch. It's in this building. It's outside. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. It's literally everywhere. The earth is full of dust. And the longer you let things sit, the longer time goes, more of that dust settles. Such will be the offspring of David um, and Christ's kingdom. Amen.